Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. The highlight of my birding week was last Saturday's trip out of Westport on Westport Seabirds. Westport Seabirds, as you recall, is the, the really the only major pelagic birding company running out of Washington State, and it has the longest, historically the longest running pelagic database of birds seen on similar trips in the world, really. Spectacular company, do great work, and last weekend was a really fine trip. This is the season where uh, a lot of birds are starting to move off their Arctic breeding grounds and move south through this area. Specifically, long-tailed Jaegers are often found this time of year. It's also the time of year when some southern breeding birds have dispersed northward to find better feeding. Grip's Mirlet was a bird I'd hoped to find on this trip, didn't work out, but it was a really good trip anyway. We had the Skua Slam. If you were in Europe, the Skua Slam. Here, the Jaeger Slam just doesn't sound as good to me, so I still like the Skua Slam, where we had South Polar Skua, Pomeran, Parasitic, and Long-Tailed Jaegers. Uh, we had Tufted Puffin. We had lots of uh, Sabin's Gulls, a small, beautiful, beautifully marked gull that tends to be far out to sea. Uh, we had uh, both... Uh, both phalaropes are red and are redneck that are far out at sea. And we had a nice showing of shearwaters. We had f- at least four species, five species, I think, of shearwater. Pink-footed and flush-footed, a re- closely related species, but it's all dark and is a really good bird. I haven't seen one in years. Really nice there. We had buller shearwater, sooty shearwater, the default shearwater seen from shore, and a look-alike shirt-tailed shearwater. Uh, Scott Mills is one of the birders on the Westport Pelagics, and he's really good at picking out shirt-tailed shearwater. So I think he's done some research with them, and seems like every trip, if you go on a trip with Scott, you have a really good chance of finding a shirt-tailed shearwater. He picks them out for us. It's really good. They look almost identical to sooty shearwaters. But the, probably for me, the coolest thing of the trip were the people on the trip. That's often the case when you go birding with a group, you meet some cool people. Well, this is the time of year uh, when, for pelagic trips, there are some things in their favor. First of all, the weather's usually pretty good and they usually go when they're scheduled, which if you're going to travel a long ways to go on a pelagic trip, it's nice to have a good chance that it's going to get offshore. So that can attract birders from far away. It's also a trip where, because the weather's pretty good and the waves aren't too bad, and there's a good variety of birds that attracts a lot of the less than super avid local birds. So we had a nice mix of birds on the trip. Ken Brown and I went together uh, down, and Bruce Labar from episode number three was one of the spotters, was actually the lead spotter on the trip. And uh, there were several other uh, members of my ABC birding club who don't get out on as many pelagic trips who are there. So we had a really nice group. But the visiting superstars were the highlight of, of the visitors. As soon as I got on the boat, Bruce pigeonholed me and said, there's a really good gull guy on the boat. It turns out that Amar Ayesh was on the boat. Amar is in the research stages of writing a book on gulls. He also has a fabulous website called Anything Larid, uh, actually anythinglaris.com, uh, Laris being the genus of the big gulls. And it has a photo quiz, a really cool website. You got to check it out, anythinglaris.com. And I got a chance to talk with Amar for a little while. Uh, he was out hoping to get good photos of Sabin's gull, and I hope they oblige for him. It's, they're a tough bird to photograph. They're flitting around, moving quickly. So I have no idea how his photographs came out, but he seems like a very competent photographer, so I'm sure he did pretty well. So I got a chance to talk with him. But maybe the funniest thing that happened on the trip was shortly after we get on. Bruce was the lead spotter, and so he gives a little introduction talk before the 
trip starts. And he goes through, and one of the first things he says is, you know, if you're interested in oceanic birds or pelagic birds, it's really good to have some good guides. And one of the best guides is this brand new book. I just got it two days ago, Oceanic Birds of the World. It's really, really cool book. Uh, I love it. It's going to be a great resource. And he held it up and showed it. And I'll put this in the galley for people to look at during the trip. And then he went on with the rest of his introduction. After the introduction, before the boat really got going, Bruce wanders in the galley and starts thumbing through the book. And a fellow comes up and taps him on the shoulder and says, what do you think of the book? And Bruce says, I love it. It's just terrific. I've, you know, avid pelagic bird, and this is going to be a great resource. And uh, Bruce says to the fellow, have you read it? Have you seen it? And he says, I wrote it. Turns out uh, Kirk Zufelt was on the trip with us. Kirk is the co-author of that new book, uh, which you definitely ought to check out. I'll put a link to it in the podcast notes. Uh, and it's a really cool book, but he was a just a blast to talk to on the boat, full of energy, full of stories, uh, and just a super nice guy. Uh, so had a great time visiting with a couple of visiting birding dignitaries and had a great trip on the boat. No seasickness, which is always good for me. Uh, pretty good weather. Rained a little bit on the way out, but overall a really nice trip and set me up for a week of celebrating that. Had a nice week. And today I have a special guest. Peter Wingberger is going to be my guest on the Bird Bander podcast episode number 30. Peter is a friend, lives here in Tacoma, is a professor at the University of Puget Sound, which is only a couple of miles from where I live, and is the director of the Slater Museum of Natural History. The Slater Museum is just a gem in our area. It has uh, all sorts of events. Uh, every, almost every month has an open house where a the community and students are welcome to come. It is a resource for students. It's a resource for visiting birders. One of the reasons that Amar was here is because the Slater Museum, along with the Burke Museum in Seattle, have by far the biggest collection of outstretched bird wings. When you process a bird for a museum, usually they roll them up and the wings are tucked in and they kind of put on a stick and you can look at them and that's really good for looking at a lot of aspects of plumage, but not so great for looking at wings. Uh, and so Years ago, uh, Dennis Paulson and uh, the curator at the Burke got together and decided that they wanted to have an outstretched wing collection, which is really good for any birds, but especially big birds like gulls and raptors and herons and egrets and pelicans and uh, swans and all sorts of things like that. And so they have huge collection. I think they have 6,000 wing specimens at the museum. And uh, I got a chance to look some of those over with Peter today. But uh, Peter's a, a super nice guy, a strong birder, and a really, really great resource for birds in this area with the Burke Museum. So welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 30, Peter Wimberger. Hey, Peter. Welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. Hi, Ed. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. This uh, this museum, the uh, Slater, is really a, a gem in our community. It's little known, too. Uh, Peter, by the way, Peter is the curator of the curator, correct? Director. Director, yeah. okay. I, I think curator, you think director, whatever. Yeah. The director of the Slater Museum here at the University of Puget Sound. And it is a wonderful place, a lot of outreach and just cool stuff. Tell us about it. So the Slater Museum is a natural history museum on the campus of University of Puget Sound. The collection itself started in about 1930 when James Slater, who was a herpetologist, he was studying amphibians and collected frogs and salamanders and kept them for his students, did research with those things. And then he and Gordon Alcorn, who was the second biologist hired at UPS, 
knew a lot of the local natural historians. When those natural historians got older, died, they ended up contributing parts of their collections or their complete collections to the Slater. It became a museum in 19, around 1940 and was the only natural history collection in Washington, or at least west of the Cascades then, so before the Burke Museum at the right. University of Washington showed up, and was the biggest collection, let's say the biggest bird collection, until the late 1970s, largest mammal collection for a while, and until recently, the largest herb collection in Washington State. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it's got a long and long history. Yeah. When did you come? So I came to University of Puget Sound in 1993. And I became director in 2006 when Dennis Paulson retired. Okay. The big shoes to fill. Yeah. Yeah. It was <laughs> definitely not planned that way. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, Dennis Paulson is, uh, in the birding world, uh, kind of an icon. He's written shorebird books and other books. He's also a big dragonfly, dragonfly guy. Expert. Yeah. He's like an expert on everything natural, it seems yeah. like. Yeah, I would um, call him sort of the, one of the eminent natural historians in the Northwest, at I least. would say in, the, in North America, probably. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so you've been here for quite a while. Uh, and what do you do? What's your job? So I was hired as a professor at UPS. So I'm an evolutionary biologist and conservation biologist. And so I taught parts of the intro bio series. I taught interdisciplinary courses. I taught an upper level evolution course. Um, so I've taught courses that range from history and philosophy of evolution to conservation and biodiversity in Borneo um, to recently a course on the natural and social science of liquor that we call hooch that has nothing to do with birds <laughs> sounds like one of those elective courses yes <laughs> upper level electives probably cool and how did you come to be the director of the museum so when so well, my first my first exposure to slater was i was at the university of washington as an undergraduate and i was working there in the collection and came up with a research idea and it involved going to museum collections and getting data from the bird egg collections. And uh, so I visited the Slater in like the late 70s. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was a collection that was in some disarray at that point. Dennis became director in 1990. Oh, and okay. as a lifetime museum person, really sort of brought it up to 20th century and then 21st century standards. When Dennis retired in 2005, the department wanted to hire a faculty replacement for him, but the school said, we don't have a position that we can do that with, so you have to promote someone from within. And as the only person in the department who had any museum experience, it was, you're it. And uh, go, <laughs> yeah. So I said I'll do it for a year and see how I like it. And it was it was different. It was interesting, and um, and I've done it ever since. That's cool. Now museums, you know, a lot of people probably think I have in the past thought. I mean, really, a natural history museum? Uh, what good are they now? You know, you've got videos, you've got DNA, and you've got all sorts of stuff going on. What do you need a museum so, for? That's a great question. So our motto here is uh, Slater Museum, where dead things come alive. And one of the things I try to get students and visitors to really understand is the ways in which museum collections can be used now. So historically, they were 
Morphology is something easy to measure. People used them to look at geographic variation, think about evolution. So museum collections were important to people like Darwin and early evolutionary biologists. Sure. More recently, um, museum collections have been used to look at genetics. So it turns out that with all of these genetic techniques, things like polymerase chain reaction, the things that you see in CSI, right. it's possible to extract DNA from most specimens. So which what, means what kind of, would you get it from like a feather or a bone you, marrow or how do you get so it out of a specimen? All of those things. So for instance, you can take a little bit of the foot pad or you can get a little bit of tissue. And now... In most, in most museums, every specimen that comes in, a tissue sample is actually saved and frozen. Uh, so frozen, okay, muscle, and, and heart, labeled liver. to be yeah. attached to that specimen. Yeah. So, for instance, all our tissue samples go up to the University of Washington at Burke, that, and they have a large tissue collection. So it can be used for genetics to ask questions about, still about evolution, but at a much deeper level. Um, the other place where museum collections become really valuable more recently is the, is thinking about human impacts on the environment and because museum collections represent represent uh, archive of life through time and space what you can do is you can say okay what for instance the what did eggshell thickness look like over time? And so right. the first place where museum collections were used to answer those kinds of questions, as far as I know, was looking at the impacts of DDT. Right. And so researchers... Silent Spring and all of that. Sure. Yeah. And a research in England looked at peregrine falcons. A researcher in the U.S. looked at bald eagles. And they said using these egg collections... And so back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, egg collecting was a huge, huge hobby, oh, yeah. right? There were magazines, people traded them like baseball cards around the world. And what they did was they used these egg collections and they measured eggshell thickness. DDT was introduced in 1947. When it was introduced, it had a huge impact on agriculture. Agricultural yields in the U.S. went up something like 20% in a single year. Wow. So really, really effective pesticide. But in the 50s, people started noticing that especially birds of prey numbers were declining and that ended up leading to Silent Spring. And it was in the 60s that a lot of this research started being done. It's like, what's the culprit? Some people suspected DDT. And of course, representatives from those companies said, ah, it's not. Can't it, be that. It can't be that. Cigarette smoking's not bad for you. Right. It calms your nerves. <laughs> and so what they did was they looked at eggshell thickness through time. And their prediction was that if DDT were important, that in 1947, starting in 1947 when DDT was introduced, eggshell thickness should be declining. Because what was happening was that eggs were cracking before they hatched. Right, and I basically that, yeah. you had um, you know, failed nesting. Failed nests, exactly. And what they found was this really, really precipitous decline in eggshell thickness starting in 1947, going down to a lower sort of thinner eggs in just a few years and it was really striking in both bald eagles and peregrines and that was one of the nails in the coffin of sure. DDT in terms of circumstantial evidence but yes. pretty strong circumstantial yeah. evidence did they did they ever come up with you know I mean it, there's no doubt in anyone's mm -hmm. rational person's mind now that DDT was the cause of that did they ever come up with uh, you know 
non-circumstantial evidence? Yeah, so there's, there's, there's physiology that shows that DDT inhibits um, part of the calcium pathway. Okay. And so essentially... Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so museum collections have been used in lots of different ways since then. So, for instance, if we think about environmental impacts through time, look using egg collections again, things like nest record cards and citizen science, um, efforts that often are associated with museum collections as well. Right. Um, things like, what are the biological impacts of climate change? And one of the first studies to show a real impact was published in the early 90s, looking at tree swallows and looking at nest states. Okay. And what they found was that in the early 90s, by using sort of egg records from uh, egg collections, using nest record cards from mm -hmm. Cornell Lab and other museums, what they found was even by the early 90s that um, egg dates w had been advanced by over a week from, oh, wow. from the mid-50s. So, and now it's it's longer than that. So that's been done, That's lots of species have been looked at. Insect collections have been looked at. People have asked the question, have ranges expanded? If they've expanded, have they expanded to the north or to the south? And as you might expect, many, many more insects have had ranges that have expanded to the north. Migratory insects, do they arrive earlier? Yes. Those kinds of things. Another place, so... Some museums have that historical data. Yeah. So they're this archive of life through time, essentially. Um, you can look at contaminants because contaminants, so for instance, heavy metals are often complex with the keratin in the feathers. Mm -hmm. And so you can look at um, heavy metals through time. So studies have been done, for instance, looking at mercury asking the question, okay, have mercury concentrations gone up or down through time? I've heard they've done that in polar bears from old museum specimens. Yep, yep. polar bears, Top um, of the food ivory, chain ivory gulls in the Arctic, and so there's these records of mercury going up in the Arctic. And one of the questions that I've asked with students here is what does mercury look like in the Pacific Northwest? And we started this out by asking the question, coal, burning volatilizes mercury. Okay. And so coal burning has really gone up in Asia. Winds come this way. Yeah, atmospheric mercury basically floats around and it gets deposited in rain. We live in a rainy place. So I thought, ah, have mercury concentrations in the Pacific Northwest, west of the Cascades, gone up in sure. the last 20 years? And you've got years. the specimens to check. Right. And so we looked at red-tailed hawks, which okay. are common in collections over the last 100 years from Washington, Oregon. And we found, in fact, that mercury concentrations have gone up in the Pacific Northwest since the mid-80s, which is when India started burning more coal. Um, one of the things that's really interesting, a study came out a couple of years ago, a couple of graduate students at uh, the Field Museum in Chicago said, you know, there's all these old specimens, and they all look really dirty. And <laughs> And it's true. If yeah. I showed you a bunch of old sure. specimens from here, especially things that have white breasts, you would go like, oh, that's old, that's dirty. Somebody hasn't taken good care of that specimen. And they said, you know, maybe it's not that they're just old. Maybe it's that they were flying around in a really smoggy dirty place. atmosphere, right? Air, yeah. smoggy air. And they just basically got all this coal soot stuck to their feathers. And because birds molt every year, right? You have sure. this yearly right. record yeah. of how dirty the air is. And so they looked at five species of white-breasted birds, so including horned larks, field sparrows from the Midwest. And they mm -hmm. said, okay, let's look at these birds over the last over 100 years and ask the question, how dirty are they? 
And using electron microscopy, they were able to show that the particles in the feathers were actually colsa, so you get that piece. And then what they did was they plotted the reflectance of these birds through time. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that birds are super dirty up until the Great Depression. And then during the Great Depression, when industry slows down, they get whiter. Uh -huh. And then as the Second World War starts to happen and we ramp up industry, they get dirtier again. And then they get cleaner after the Second World War. And then in the 60s, they end up... Um, really getting cleaner because that's, when, oil. that's when clean air act regulations start getting enacted. And so we did a more fine-scaled analysis of our data with the red-tailed hawk mercury, and we find the exact same pattern. We see a like, decrease in mercury during the Great Depression, increase in the build-up of the Second World War, decrease after the Second World War, levels off until the early 60s, and then it goes down until the mid-80s. So it seems a clear correlation with coal burning. Yeah. So. It, is all coal created equal with cigarette? Do you know, regards um, to mercury? I don't have any it's, idea. It's not. So there's dirtier coal and there's cleaner coal. And so some has higher higher mercury content than others. Okay. So, way cool. Yeah, way cool. And so, I mean, I could keep going. There's sure. also, you can... You talked about stable isotopes. I'm yes. switching subjects. Yeah. That, that, that's that, where for me, that For me, that's a fascinating subject. I mean, I learned about stable isotopes in college uh -huh. in the 70s. I mean, it's not a new... Uh, concept to using it for aging things and stuff, but to, how, how do you use that? How do you, how's that work? So, we are what we eat, and so we're we're incorporating carbon, nitrogen, hydrogen, oxygen mm -hmm. into our tissues all right. the time, and so stable isotopes are different variants of the same element that differ in the number of neutrons, mm -hmm. and so it turns out that. Um, as animals and plants, as they process, let's say, carbon, they um, process, let's say, heavy isotopes differently than light isotopes. So, for instance, it turns out that um, for carbon, different kinds of plants mm -hmm. that have different photosynthetic pathways end up like having different carbon isotope ratios of the heavy to the light isotope. Right. And so, for instance, one way we use it here is that corn has a different photosynthetic pathway than wheat does. Okay. So animals that eat corn have different carbon isotope signature than animals that eat wheat. So, for instance, if you compared Mayans, like if you compared Mexicans from the 1500s to Europeans from the 1500s, and you looked at their hair, like the Mexicans people eating corn in Mexico would have a different signature than Europeans eating a wheat-based diet. Okay. We, in the U.S., now look like 15th century people from Mexico because there's so much corn, corn in our food. Okay. So one of the things we can do is we can ask the question, so for instance, what are human impacts on diets of animals like raccoons or coyotes? Mm -hmm. And so people have done, and we've done some of this work here, where we take hair from raccoons in cities in urban and rural areas and ask the question, so how much are these animals depending on human, human food? food. Yeah. yeah. And it turns out that they are. In urban areas yeah. especially, I bet. Yeah. And it, so another way another way that you can use isotopes, which is really, I, is, I think is really cool, is that nitrogen isotopes that each step in the trophic chain, right. that heavy nitrogen... Little animals eat bigger animals, eat bigger animals. That's yeah. what you mean by the trophic yeah. chain. Yeah, so yeah. like the food chain. Yes. Yeah, the food chain. So if you think about, if you think about um, 
like orcas, they mm -hmm. are about five steps up the food chain. Right. So one of the questions people have asked about seabirds is why have populations declined? Right. And one of the hypotheses is that there are fewer fish in the sea because we've been such effective fishers. Right. And one of the so one of the predictions was that if these birds depend on fish, that maybe some of these birds have actually so there's less food, supports small doesn't support as large populations. Maybe they're feeding lower in the food chain. And so, instead of their optimal yeah, where, where they hurt genetically or where they evolved to eat this fish, they might have to eat a fish smaller on the food chain. Or maybe. krill. Or right? krill, okay. Yeah. And so a number of seabirds, including marbled merlets, um, been able we've shown that over time so using museum specimens from the 50s, mm -hmm. comparing those to birds now, right. they're eating lower in the food chain now than they used to be So eating. probably have to work harder to get enough food to eat and have less breeding success because they're only going to breed if they've got enough food to raise young or successfully exactly. at least. That's exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Really cool stuff. Yeah. Really cool stuff. I had heard about that and I kind of got it, but now I get it better. Good. That's cool. That's cool. So. It, something you didn't uh, kind of mention before, I wanted to talk a little bit about. As a birder yeah. in Tacoma, yeah. uh, this is a great, I mean, there are, I don't even know how many bird uh, specimens you have here, but a whole bunch. Mm -hmm. uh, in, so I think of the specimens you have largely as the, the ones that are rolled up on a stick. Yeah. <laughs> and you have the wing collections, yeah. which are pretty unique and special to here. If I wanted to learn more about bird identification, uh, how would I go about doing that? Using the museum, so um, we have so we have open houses mm -hmm. um, every month during the school year that are run by students. But those are less focused on specific questions. When people have specific questions, so one of the things that happened when I became director, there was this, there was a recognition by the school that this is a distinctive asset. We've got so that in this later there's about eighty five thousand specimens. We've got about twenty five thousand bird birds here and we've got probably six to seven thousand spread wings in our spread wing wow. collection um, which is about the second largest spread wing collection in the world I think after um, the Burke probably. after the Burke yeah. yeah I know you the two museums are the places that kind of became a thing yeah and that's where it's that's where spread wings actually started Sievert Rower and Dennis Paulson recognized that like all these specimens like the like a study skin that wings are tucked back and what one of the most important parts of a bird is the wing. So it's actually pretty destructive to try to pull the wing out of those skins. So by spreading a wing, it's actually possible then to look at molt, it's possible to look at characters, it's possible to measure whatever you want to measure. Yeah. Um, so the if people are interested for instance, in looking at some specific aspect of birds. So we've had... Crossbill subspecies or cross, whatever. Right, crossbill variation, or we've had people, we've had banders who are really interested in looking at wings to think about aging birds and scoring wool, those kinds of things. So for instance, Nathaniel Swecker and his crew that bands out at Morse, right. they've come in um, to look at birds a bunch. Um, yeah, Jerry brought us and Clarice have come in to look at thrushes and right. wings. Um, so it's possible, just have to 
contact, make an appointment. Yeah, yeah, contact the museum and talk to us and let us know what you're interested in looking at. But when I became director, one of the mandates I was given was to increase the visibility of the museum, both on campus and in the local community. And so one of the things that we do is we also provide um, these education kits for mostly they're geared towards fourth fifth graders mm -hmm. and um, one of them is completely a bird kit where students look at we have 33 different local species of birds wow. in the kit each student gets a bird and they have to think about the bills the feet and think about like how does this bird make a living where might it live um, another one of the kits has mammal skulls most again things that are local the kids love that they do skulls oh my yeah. goodness and so we work with thousands of Tacoma school kids every year doing that Very kind of cool. stuff so we have an AmeriCorps full, so who basically goes in the schools full-time and teaches. Um, and we have a volunteer program here. And most of the volunteers are students, so we have about 35 volunteers a year. And they do the open houses. They lead tours in the museum. Shout out. I've been to some of those open houses, and they are really cool. This, they're like the second Tuesday, the third Thursday. I don't remember what they are. Or they're periodic they're, they're anyway. They're periodic. Okay. There's usually one a month. So there's one usually right before Halloween. Uh -huh. There's usually one right around Darwin's birthday. And so those are the two the two that are fixed, right. uh, fairly fixed. Um, and this year we have one, I think it's, it's either one or two days before Halloween. I think it might be the night before Halloween. Um, we have one early in October, and then we have one in mid, late, right before Thanksgiving. These seem to have a theme and uh, and have specimens out that you can look mm -hmm. at and it, yeah. it's, they're pretty well attended i've done a couple yeah of we get we get 200 to 300 people usually there's um students and gary sugar our collection manager mm -hmm. who's a, a wizard with yes most things get to watch him uh, skin uh, and skin and prepare specimens yeah. that's pretty cool um and so there's usually a theme so for instance themes might be mating systems or they sometimes it might be a, a group so it might be waterfowl um, it might be a region so I might talk about oceans or marine systems mm -hmm. so right yeah keep your eyes posted the Slater has a Facebook page where people oh, okay I'll make so, sure I put a link in the podcast notes. that would be great yeah, yeah. so the Slater Museum of Natural History um, Facebook page will advertise when those happen. okay um, another thing that we do at least this year, again, um, we have a fantastic student, Will Brooks, who you've talked to. I've, I've Will's been a guest on my show and uh, is, I, I've been meaning to, you have to get a hold of the director of missions and make sure they replace him. We, we can't do without a Will anymore. We're dependent on Will to find us birds. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> um, he leads a weekly bird walk on he campus. Does. And those are a lot of fun. So for instance, for people who are starting out birding that live relatively close, those are a great way to yeah. sort of I see. was bogged. I mean, he started those as a freshman, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, he did. that takes chutzpah. I it, mean, seriously. It does. Freshman, 18, 19-year-old kid says, well, I'm going to lead a bird walk on campus twice a week. Uh, anyone can come, and, and yeah. he's always the best bird there. It doesn't matter who comes. He's yeah. going to be the best bird there. So yeah. he is really good. He's, he, is, he is great. So, yeah. yeah. He's doing some research this summer. You, but yeah. you work with students in the summer, too, on research yeah. projects, don't you? Yep. Yeah. Tell, Will did a, a project on uh, white-crowned sparrows, pugetensis, and gambolai, and mm. subspecies interaction, and all of that. Tell me about some of the others. I talked to Will about that, so okay. we don't need to go into that yeah, so much. Yeah, so he's he's continued that project this summer. Right. And so now he's added genetics to that. Um, 
I have another student who was looking at birds from Pearson King County over the last hundred years, asking this question, asking more metals question, but looking at a much broader array of heavy metals and looking at the impact of the smelter and looking at birds in different ecological guilds to ask the question, are there differences in the patterns of metals in these birds in Pearson King County over time? Right. And is that related Has to Has that gone down since they closed the smelter, or how long did yeah. it take to go down? Those and, would be good questions. And do ground foragers have sort of a different pr metal profile than, let's say, aerial foragers? Yeah. Aerial foragers, sure. exactly. Good questions. And so Why would we know that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, next year, I'm hoping. Next year, yeah. maybe. Okay, good. So, yeah, Keshriyaji Oswal is the student who's doing that. Way cool. Um, I have two students that are working on, so a few years ago, Kana Fox Dobbs, who's a biogeochemist in the, in the in geology department, um, she and I started working with students looking at beavers as essentially restoration tools. Mm -hmm. So in the Metau, which if you have, so for Go all your Metau. listeners, if you haven't gone, place. it is a really great place. So North Central Washington, Winthrop, Twisp, Mazama. Um, they have had since 2008 this project called the Metau Beaver Project, where they take uh, Kent Woodruff and the Forest Service ended up taking nuisance beavers, so people would complain, "I've got a beaver," right. and they would end up relocating them in place they wanted to be higher, yeah. yeah, sort of in, in in streams on Forest Service land or sort of in in uh, smaller streams, mm -hmm. kind of near the headwaters, and that has been really successful. Um, but they're always asking, they said, we would like to document the changes that right. end up happening when we introduce these beavers. And so we ended up working with them. We had a student looking at carbon storage, so how much carbon is being stored by beaver dams mm -hmm. in these in these smaller right. streams. Um, two years ago, I had a student looking at insect, stream insect communities, and she found that, in fact, there was small but significant differences in the communities above and below beaver dams with communities that sort of indicate kind of healthier conditions below the dam. So suggesting that, yeah, there's this impact. And so this year... I'm sorry. So healthier conditions. So the dam somehow cleaned up the there, water? Or I, yeah, I don't get so, that. So it seems like what's happening is that dams are basically collecting fine sediments. And fine sediments end up um, essentially choking like insects that, like these, uh, these larval aquatic insects end up respiring with gills. Um, in the same way that if you think about fine sediments smothering salmon eggs, it's the okay. same kind of idea. Okay, that makes sense now. And so we think it's probably because of the sediment trapping. And so this year, one of the data points um, that was really striking was that in this burned area, there was the biggest change from above to below. More, more soot and stuff. Yeah. More, yeah, more of these fine sediments being eroded. And so um, this year we teamed up with a graduate student or a group from Eastern Washington. They were looking at vegetation changes in burned areas with right. and without beavers. And so this year we looked at stream insects above and below dams that had been burned. So we basically had burned places with beavers, burned places without beavers, and then unburned places right. with and without have you, beavers. Have you gone back? Have they, have you, have they, would seem like a cool thing to do to say, okay, next, the next beaver we get, we're going to put here. 
Okay. So that's what and they, can we go to that place and do a baseline and then a year after the dam and five years after the dam or whatever? That'd that be pretty would, cool stuff. Yes, that would be that would be the ideal kind of study. Um, the beavers often don't stick around. And students don't last that long. They don't. They Under, graduate, undergrads don't. You know? But that would be that would actually be the ideal setup. And then another student said um, the eastern folks were looking at vegetation and found these differences. And another student, Haley Reddig, so Aaron Stewart was working on the macroinvertebrates, and Haley Reddig is um, looking at bird communities in these different areas. That was areas. this past summer, this wasn't past it? Past summer. Yes, I'm yes. excited to hear about that. So they, um, so Aaron has, is analyzing her data, and Haley's analyzing her data now. But they sound like an ABC program to me coming up in a few months. Yeah, that could be fun. Yeah, that'd be, be really, really fun. fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, ABC, but ABC is our local birding club. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there is, there actually is, if people do want to go to the Metau soon, on the weekend of the 14th and 15th of September, okay. there's the Metau Beaver Festival. And <laughs> okay. they have two keynote speakers. Uh, one is Ben Goldfarb, who wrote a book that won the best science book of 2018 called Eager, The Secret and Surprising Life of Beavers. So wow. you might ask, like, how could a book about beavers really be? Yeah. Really good. <laughs> Sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. It's a great book. And uh, and then uh, Sarah Konigsberg, I think is her name, who did a documentary on, I think it's called The Beaver Believers. So that she'll be there and the, and the film will be shown. And that's very cool. Saturday night. Very, very cool. Yeah. That's neat. That's neat. So you've uh, got a bunch of students uh, working. Uh, you teach. You manage the museum. And you get out birding now and then, too, Peter. You say you're not a birder, but you're a birder. I try. I figured. So when I became museum director, I decided I had to up my game a little bit. Okay. I, was, I was very kind of casual birder. Mm-hmm. And so it's been really great. Yeah. You joined the 253 Club a little while ago. Yeah. Uh, For listeners, uh, our area code in this area is 253, and uh, Marcus Roenig uh, set out the the bar that 253 species on your life list in Pierce County is pretty good. There are maybe six or eight e-birders who have that uh, level, uh, and uh, it takes a few years and a lot of work to get there. Welcome. Yeah. So, yeah, the the birding community in this area has been great and very supportive, and and then... uh, and I've got to admit that having Will come as a student has like even upped my game more. I'm sure. I mean, you uh, can't be totally embarrassed when you walk outdoors and right. don't hear or see. Oh, anything. I'm embarrassed all the time. So, <laughs> yeah, it's easy to be with Will. Yeah. Uh, we went on a big year with Will. You missed that year, yeah. I think. Uh, P- uh, Peter goes on our county big years once in a while with Bruce Labar and myself and other people. I think you went on some before I was doing it, and. Uh, Will went on one with Ken, Bruce, Will, and I, and I think there were like eight or ten species that Will got us on that we were. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, see that bird? That's a that's a meadowlark flying three miles away. I heard it call or something. Yeah, you know? yeah he has very keen ears and eyes. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. amazing. He's, he's spectacular. So. Anyway, uh, so uh, I I know you've been out a little bit lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have. Um, I try to, so I have one thing, I think one of the, probably the uniquest, I guess that's not really, you can't. Most unique. Most unique, but things are either unique or not unique, right? Yeah. But uh, <laughs> one unique aspect of our museum is that we have a museum dog. And the museum dog doesn't chew up the bones or birds or anything, which is, 
otherwise he wouldn't be here. But um, the dog makes me go out on walks, and yes. so that well, that's I've decided my thumbnail picture will be a picture of you and your dog. Okay. What's your dog's name? I can't remember. Kava. Kava. Kava yeah. and Peter will be on the thumbnail picture. Right. Check it out. So um, yeah, so we went out uh, last weekend. Went down to Chambers Bay Beach Access yes. and had ourselves a a, a little sandaling, which. Uh, that, that that's a funny story. That you sent that picture around, mm-hmm. uh, and Ken Brown and I were on our drive back from the Pelagic trip. You know, weary. The, the Pelagic trips are they're wonderful, but you by the end of the day, I am spent. Yeah. And I'm driving back. I'm driving. It comes to my phone. You know, not supposed to. I I just open the phone, my thumbprint, send it, pass it to uh, Ken to see what it is. He says, oh, it's a picture. And I said, what's that? We both look it, on a phone. You know, you know how sometimes your first impression is the best? Yeah. So neither of us blow it up or anything. We just look, oh, looks like a sandalwood. And we just left it at that. Yeah. We didn't even, you know, that was that was how we came up with that idea. And, and it's funny because that's what it was. But I had two other people were like, oh, it's a Beards. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I looked, when I got home and I blew, I was like, oh, I think it probably is a Beards. But, you know, when you just, sometimes you just, just shaping, shaping, it looked like a sandalwood. Yeah. And then, and then Dennis, Dennis pointed out that the, like the black wrist is really... That was exactly what we yeah. saw. We just looked at a pale bird with a black wrist, sandal. Yeah, and it yeah. was. Yeah. So, <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, and I went out, like took the dog out for a walk this morning down along the water. And you get a lot of it. You, you walk in the dark in the winter. I do. And so you, you are an owl finder at Point Defiance. Yes, so, yeah. yeah. You, yeah. Wh- where do you walk? Do you walk down along the water? Or? No, I walk, I park. Usually... I end up parking um, sort of there's a, the base of the hill that goes up to Fort Nisqually and there's some less traveled trails in there okay. and uh, there even though you're not supposed to I let the dog off the leash and at, uh, at five in the morning at five in the, winter, in the, morning, in the rain it's is probably okay. okay yeah and he's so old now he d- he doesn't even chase anything so um, but yeah I've had sawwets and great horns I know, and yeah. bards you, and you've there. rocked it in there so, yeah, yeah. It's, good. it's good many of us at county birds try to get many spe- as many species as we can every year and so often around january february you get us on an owl or two over at the point which yeah. is very cool yeah i mean one of the things i guess one of the things that i realized one of the added benefits of doing sort of county year birding or just county birding is that you really get to know your place you way do. better, and 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 you you really study about when when you know mm-hmm. when do the birds arrive? There's no sense looking for uh, a yellow warbler in the middle of April because it just isn't going to happen. You know, just be patient. It'll be there at the end of May. You know, yeah. whatever. I mean, you, 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 so you you get you to studying your bar charts and and really recognizing when to go where and when to expect things and mm-hmm. and when it's different you say ooh things seem early this year yeah. although I, I have to say everybody always seems seems to think they're early or late and, and by Ebert they're always the same <laughs> 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 you, you're you're always biased by your most recent yeah. uh, most recent sighting I mean I'm a family doctor and they did a study about how do physicians make decisions. Well, you know, we learn a base of data, and we, so, so uh, something like, and I'm making this up, but it's something like, you know, 50 or 60% of our decision making comes from uh, background and knowledge and education and study, and about 50% comes as what's happened to your patients lately. Yeah. 
and it's a huge bias uh-huh. in, in everything. Yeah, it yeah. Is, yeah. So it's, it, it's terrible, but it's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're biased by you know your by your, your recent experience. Yeah, poker yeah. players uh, are biased in their betting habits by did they lose with that hand last time, not by what the real odds are. I mean, uh-huh. it's all a huge uh-huh. thing. Yeah. All of us need to overcome in our occupations yeah. is uh, that recency bias. Yeah, that's hard, I think. It is. Yeah. It is. But it's fun, too. Yeah. <laughs> so you're still doing research. What, what are you working on now? So right now I'm trying to <clears throat> finish up a couple of papers. Uh-huh. So another thing that we've had students working on is looking at feather structure, feather shape and feather structure. So we've got a couple of manuscripts on that that we're working on. Tell, um, help me understand that. So if you think about feathers, feathers have um, basically barbs, mm-hmm. right? And then right. those are connected and by bar- barbules. Yes. Yep. And so one of the things we've had students do is one student looked at a whole bunch of owls asking the question whether or not owls that had different habitats actually had different fine structure of their feathers. And there were some differences, but one of the things that really jumped out at us was that the way people measure barb density, the number of barbs per Mm -hmm. distance, actually ends up confusing two things. So, or it combines two things. It combines the density with the angle. And so, if you remember your right triangles, Mm -hmm. basically people are sort of measuring, like, they're not measuring barbs the same way, depending okay. on like what what, what angle feather it that. is. Yeah. yeah, I would think it'd have to do with how and long and how big the feathers are too. Um, I don't know. It, it does, although less so. Hmm. Um, and then Gary Sugar and a volunteer have been looking at age differences in feather structure. So asking the question: Do juveniles? Like as nestlings grow, there's a much more compressed time window in which they need to grow and make right. feathers. And basically, do they make lower quality feathers than adults? So that's another thing that we've been hmm. doing here. Um, do they? Also, uh, yes, they do. I, and they, and the they do it in different ways, So, which is interesting. Um, so some of them basically um, make different size barbs. Uh-huh. But then other ones change the interbarb interval to make less barbs. Yeah, yep. So cool. Yeah, cool. Uh, so, a couple of burning questions to finish I'll, it up. So I just, just yeah, I was just oh, going to say Go one one last thing, and this is yeah. just for for people who like weird things. So another thing that I'm working on is I'm working on some ice worm kinds of things, which are not. What is an birds. ice worm? Ice worms are worms related. <laughs> yeah, they live. So they're related to earthworms. So okay. they're annelids, segmented worms, and they live only in permanent ice. So they live in glaciers from central Oregon to south central Alaska. And oh, okay. So for years, students and I have been doing genetics um, in Washington mm-hmm. on the different populations because the, the... They are certainly losing habitat. Yes, they oh, are. The distribution is interesting. And then recently I've been collaborating with someone uh, from Washington State and who's really interested in whether or not ice worms, which are incredibly abundant during the summer, they come to the ice service late in the afternoon and then I've watched rosy finches, ravens, and other birds just picking them off the Top snow like yeah. popcorn or that's, Cheetos. That's what they're doing, rosy finches. That's why they like the edges of the ice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wonder, what's so big about the edges yeah, of ice? It's probably the ice worms. Okay. And uh, so we've been looking at that connection lately. That's cool. cool. Yeah, cool. Very cool. So, in, in terms of 
you travel a lot in your, I mean, you travel a fair bit in your work. You take students on expeditions and uh-huh. winter or whatever you call your January session here sometimes. Yes. Yeah, actually go, actually go right after the semester. So. Okay, yeah, yeah. It, but periodically yep. you go off on trips. Uh, do, do you uh, get any birding done on those? I do a little bit of birding. Um, I, you know, so one of the courses I've taught is this biodiversity and conservation in Borneo. And as you probably know, there are if a few birding cool is birds not, in Borneo. Yeah, there's yeah. some very cool birds, but if birding's not the main focus and you're responsible for it's a hard group to get of people, in. it's hard to get out. So um, I have, when this, you know, when we're taking breaks or those kinds of things, I've gotten get out your and out seen, yeah, and I've, yeah. Seen, I've seen some good birds there, but it's not, I've yeah. never, ever, it, like... It is hard to have birding be a secondary uh, activity when you're pretty occupied with your first one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I would love to do someday is to go to a place like that with a bunch of people who are, who are, birding, like birding, and yeah. just go birding for I've a week. Just started doing birding tours. I never. I mean, somehow I, I, uh, my, I grew up in birding with figuring, you know, you just need to get out and find birds, or go with friends and find birds. But hiring someone to go find it's almost cheating, you know. Yeah. But I've come to learn that when you travel, if you're outside of your own area, South America, Central America, or Asia, whatever, mm. I mean, if you don't have a local person helping, it's it's pretty difficult. It's hard. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at my level of birding, it's almost impossible. I mean, you got whole families of birds you've never seen. How do you get on a species? Yeah. It's hard enough to get them into a family. Yeah. Uh, and so it's just much more rewarding and informative and just fun yeah. if you have somebody helping you out. Yeah. So, I th- a shout out for bird guides. I, I definitely have found them to be no longer something I avoid, something I seek out. Good. Yeah. yeah that's fun. Yeah. Well, Peter, thanks so much for You're being welcome. on the Bird Banner podcast with me tonight. I've had a good time. Uh, I want to uh, walk around after this and we'll take a few pictures I'll use in the blog. I, I put up a blog post associated with each of these. So I'll put some on the Bird Banner Facebook page and some on the birdbanner.com website with some. Uh, some pictures of the museum and a shout out for that it'll be really fun Uh, thank you Uh, thanks again for being on yeah thank you ed it was fun well that wraps up the bird banner podcast episode number 30 with peter wimberger i had a good time this was my first episode recorded on site i went to the slater museum and met peter and we recorded this right in the museum so it was really fun make sure you like the slater museum on facebook so that you can find out about current events, open houses, that sort of thing. I'll make sure I put links to that, along with photographs from the museum, on my birdbanner.com website, and I'll probably post some to Facebook also. So until next time, good birding, good day. <laughs>